or snap finally. <clears throat> well, good morning and welcome to our study in the book of James as we continue our series, what it means to be a mature, complete Christian, how God works that in us so that we would not be children, we would not be babies, we would not be infants, as it were, when it comes to uh, the life that God has called us to lead. When we look at this idea of becoming a mature Christian, we have looked at the first uh, few verses in the last couple of weeks, and we have seen that when trials do occur, um, you know, you and I, we might wonder, how do you respond to them? As you read through James, one of the things you, you might want to, you know, ask yourself is, he's got these statements, you know, they might be commands, um, there's a lot of commands, we talked about that in the previous weeks. But one of the things you might want to do as you read a letter like this is, is try to put yourself in, in the shoes and, and ask yourself some questions. Like, why would he be telling me this? Like, wh what am I thinking as he's going through the flow of his letter here? Um, because unfortunately, one of the things that we've developed in our culture is these itty-bitty devotions. And, um, I mean, devotion time is good. Quiet time is good. I I'm not knocking that. I'm saying that what it has done, though, as a... <laughs> kind of a, a negative offshoot, is it's taught us to digest the scriptures in, in snippets, in fortune cookie size, in, in, in tweets, you know, 140 characters or something. And the truth of the matter is that James is not a tweet, and uh, it's not 140 characters, and it's not just a devotional size. It's actually fairly short, but it's still five chapters, you know, based on how they've divided it up for us in our modern age. And so he wrote that as a, as a whole letter that you would just read in one sitting. And I mean, I've, I've never been in any church anywhere where they just read a whole book and, and boom, that's it. You know, we're done. Um, although we might try that next year. We'd be praying about that. 52 books. There's 66 actually, so we have to double up a couple. Um, but through the Bible in a year. But anyways, back to James. Um, when we're looking at this idea of becoming a mature Christian... <clears throat> We've got to look at this, this whole book, and as we go through the flow, some of the things that I've been doing as, as I work through this is, is asking myself uh, some questions. So when we're, we're working through here, I'm mean, like, well, what are these trials that we're talking about? Because we've got trials mentioned, and then we've got temptations mentioned. And what am I supposed to do? <coughs> and that's where James comes in, and he's anticipating your question. He says, well, what do you do? We ask God for wisdom because you don't know what to do. And so how am I supposed to think? And so these are these questions that he doesn't lay them out as a question, but they're kind of the backdrop for what's going on. So I'm just encouraging you to try to, to think that way a little bit as you read this. So one of the things we learned in the first couple of verses, you've got to prepare yourself for trials. And we talked about how even in the, the greeting where he talks about being a slave of Christ, that you have to submit yourself Rejoice in the fact that trials are coming your way because they're going to make you mature and complete, not lacking anything, and then desire God's way and wisdom. And so that was the first week. We also looked at the, um, the persecuted church around the world and how that fits in with them. Then we looked at pursuing God's way and wisdom and, and maturity <clears throat> and how this fits in with the idea of trials and tests and, and how you have to pray and ask God for the wisdom and praise God in the situation because even though you might be humble or of a low situation, he has taken you and he has saved you and he has put you in an exalted place. And we unpacked that further this uh, past week with the kids at uh, Willow Key. And you've got to persevere. Um, you know, you, you cannot win if you quit. All right? 
Winners don't quit. Quitters don't win. It's really that simple. And that's how it works with God also. When you read a lot of the New Testament letters, the book of Hebrews, the book of James, 1 Peter, you, you see this constant idea of perseverance. Even, even Jesus in the Gospels, okay? He, he expects that his, his people will persevere to the end. And a lot of times, especially in the book of Hebrews, there's a lot of Christian debate over, is he saying that I'll lose my salvation? What's he saying here? And the thing is that what he's really saying is, listen, if you're serious about Jesus, persevere. Because quitters don't and winners don't. Exactly. And so we've got to persevere to the end. And so this process continues until we are taken to be with Jesus, where we will then be made fully complete. So <coughs> trials and tests happen. Okay, that's life. We've we got to get used to that, and we need to learn how to respond to them. And James 1, 2, and 3, he has said, count it all joy. Now, that's a little bit difficult for us, all right? But God is purifying us like fine gold, and he's growing us into maturity. So James said we, can, we should recognize that and count it joy. Why? Why do you count it joy? Because you recognize what God is doing in the process and what the outcome is going to be. It is... It is like a parent who continues to pour into their kid because they have this end goal, hopefully it's a biblical goal, that their child is going to grow into a mature, godly adult and that they know that their love and their nurture and their time and their sacrifice and their money and everything else that they're pouring into it is helping that happen. If they didn't think anything, any of that was happening, my goodness, why would you bother with any of that, right? I mean, it's a whole life of investment, right, Cheryl? Um, so that's the thing seeing through to the other side you count it all joy but just remember it's, it's in our mindset if you don't see that are you going to count it all joy no not at all because we all know what that's like we focus on the problem and we don't count it joy we count it as what drudgery and inconvenience in our life God why are you doing this to me what is going on right and so if we want to be made Perfect, complete in the Lord. You have to go through what? Trials. Exactly, because the trials build you, okay? We also saw that becoming a mature Christian means that temptations are not from God. So the natural inclination, these are these questions that, that aren't exactly in the text, but they're kind of like behind the text. So we're learning that trials are coming our way. We're learning that these things are going to happen. We're learning you're supposed to count it all joy and persevere. Um, and then we say, but, but where do these things come from? And so then the natural question is, was God tempting me? Now, I mentioned before, but I want to reiterate, uh, the word for, for test or trial and temptation is the same word. So depending on the context, it, it can be two different things. And it's basically one related to motives. Okay, a test or a trial, the motive is for you to pass it and to grow into maturity. A temptation, when it's translated as temptation, the motive is for you to fail. And so you've got to keep that in mind as you read this text, what we talked about last week, that God doesn't tempt us and can't be tempted. Why? Because God doesn't ever have it as a goal for you to fail. God's goal is always for you to win. All right, so God isn't doing the tempting. We saw last week <coughs> that the tempting comes from where? Where? Not Satan. We did, we, yeah, we didn't say Satan last week at all. Our own selves. It comes from ourselves. 
And so as we unpacked that last week and we learned that this temptation actually comes from the evil desires we have inside of us, which is why Jesus in Luke 4, Matthew 4, he was not giving in to temptation. He won in that situation. Why? Because he has no evil desires. He has only desires to please the Father. All right? So when your desires line up with God's and your desires are only to please God, are you going to give in to temptation and sin and lead to death? No. Not when your desires are lined up with God's. So the only time you do that is when your desires are not lined up with God's. All right? James deals with this issue of temptation more directly than any other New Testament authors. As can be seen by the, the following two charts, I'm just going to show you briefly. But the first one is about the word tempting in the New Testament. And you can see from this, this chart that James uses this <clears throat> more, it's the orange, the, the pie chart on the left there, more than the rest of the New Testament authors. So if you, if you want to know where do I go to look about this idea of, of tempting, well, what book would be a good place to go look? Exactly. Now, the other word is the word evil, okay? Tempting and evil. Remember the evil desires aspect that we were talking about? This word also, in terms of percentage, um, is in James the most. And you can see, again, the orange bar at the bottom. <coughs> so, in the New Testament, both of these ideas, tempting and evil, are, are high-profile terms in the book of James. Why? Because they're a hindrance to your growth. They're a hindrance to you becoming who God wants you to be in Christ. And so you've got to combat these, and you've got to be aware of them and not be deceived. Okay? Last week when we were looking at the text, don't be deceived, okay, about where these temptations are coming from. That's going to be in our text for today um, as well. So the summary so far that we've looked at is that becoming a mature Christian, trials and tests will happen, <coughs> and temptations are not from God. Okay? These issues dealt with by James, again, is, is for your growth, for you to become a fully complete, perfect if you want to use the word, but not perfect in how you normally think of it, perfect as in mature, complete, lacking nothing, as James talks about it and most of the Bible talks about it when it means perfect. So this morning, we want to look at the idea of God, his character, and the fact that God is good. See, these temptations don't come from God. And the reason these temptations don't come from God is, as James unpacked for us last week, these temptations come from your misplaced, or as he puts it in your translation, probably evil desires. Okay? What happens is you have a desire. I really like banana cream pie. Well, that's fine. That, that's not a problem. But... When I wake up at 3 in the morning and I've got to have a banana cream pie, so I drive to Perkins and break in and steal a banana cream pie and eat the whole thing in the parking lot before I get back in the car and get back to my house, that's a problem. That's called an inordinate desire. No, I've never done that. Okay? That's an inordinate desire. It's a desire out of control. It needs to be checked. Okay? You need to control that desire. Okay? In fact, the sad thing is that because of our new diet, I can't even eat a Perkins banana cream pie. So... I'm going to have to experiment this week on making one that I can eat. So these ideas of evil and temptation have got to be looked at or they're going to destroy us, okay? That little desire for a banana cream pie, like that's a crazy story, Kevin. Okay, in a sense, 
change it to crack cocaine and it happens every day, right? So what, what happens with that? What's the outcome? What's the consequences, okay? Well, just in, in my little silly illustration, okay, how many different crimes were committed, all right? What am I going to be charged with when the police show up, all right? All of these things over a desire for banana cream pie. I mean, it's good, but is it that good? No, no, it's not. You know, that's a perverted desire, okay? Um, I'm glad you like it, Coop, because we've got to find a good recipe, all right? So <clears throat> these don't come from God because God is good. God is good all the time. Yeah, we say it, we sing it, and we lie. <coughs> when's the last time? Don't raise your hand and don't tell me out loud. Okay, when's the last time that you actually thought that God wasn't good? Okay? It, it happens to... Everybody that I know, at some point, you think, what is going on? I don't think this fits, God. Why are you doing this to me? And James is saying, hold on a minute. You need to reevaluate who God is. And this really, guys, goes to the heart of God's character and who he is, which is why James says that God cannot be the one tempting you because the temptation, which is from your desires, which then leads to sin, which then leads to death, cannot be of God, because God does not bring about death. God brings about what? Life. God is in the life-giving business. That's who God is. God's in the creating business. That's who God is. And so we reach our passage for this morning in James chapter 1, verse 16 and 18. <coughs> he says, don't be deceived, my dearly loved brothers. Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. With him there is no variation or shadow cast by turning. By his own choice, he gave us a new birth by the message of truth so that we would be the first fruits of his creatures. Now, in this passage, it starts off with this idea of not being deceived. He says, don't be deceived. Why would you be deceived? Well, how about every time you think that God was the cause of your temptation, you've been deceived? You could actually add to that. He's not talking about Satan. In fact, that's, Satan's not even in this whole conversation. But when you try to blame him for all your temptations, um, you're probably being deceived also. Because your temptations come from where? Yourself. Okay, so look in the mirror. All right? Now... Deception is about being misled or misleading others. Melissa was telling me about this guy last night, so I, I Googled the story so I could use it this morning because it's a pretty interesting case of deception. There's this man who was uh, married, his name is Richard Hoagland, <coughs> and he was married to this woman. It was his second marriage, and he had two boys. And one day... Nobody really knows why, but he decided to leave, and he called his wife and said he needed to go to the emergency room, <coughs> and he was heading there. And she said, well, can't you wait till I get home? I'll go with you. He said, no, it can't wait. And so he took off. Well, she never saw him again. He disappeared. Now, that first year... He sent his, his boys a birthday card with 50 bucks and said, I love you, miss you, etc. But then things just tapered off. He disappeared. 
So after a long time, eventually, they couldn't find him. The wife was interrogated by the police, thought she had something to do with his disappearance. Eventually, they declared him dead. After he was declared dead, she eventually remarried. <coughs> the thing that happened is it turns out <coughs> 20 23 years later, and a thousand miles away, he showed up in Florida. He had come down here, assumed someone else's identity who had died, and married another woman and has another family. The police show up at his door one day and begin questioning him about who he is. <clears throat> and eventually, he kept saying he was this other person, and they pull out the death certificate and say, this person is dead. Who are you really? And so, I don't know why, but he suddenly just confessed the whole thing. So anyways, he's locked up right now. Okay? So that's 23 years of deception, and suddenly it was found out. Now, I don't want to say, you know, your sin will find you out. The scripture does say that. <coughs> but that's deception. He lied. He misled people. His family. I have no idea what was going on in his mind. All I know is deception. He misled people. Now, James is talking about a deception <coughs> that is even worse than that. Because James is talking about a deception of how mostly we deceive our own selves. Okay, now this guy's deceived somehow also, but then he deceived other people, all right? But we deceive ourselves about our sin, about the roots of it, and about God. And that's what James is dealing with. <clears throat> Deception occurs regularly. <clears throat> you can be fooled, but James is specifically talking, okay, like I said, about deceiving ourselves, which happens every time we sin. Every time we follow our own desires, our ways, our wisdom, instead of God's desires, his ways, and his wisdom. You can be deceived by various things, including wealth, according to Mark 4.19, sin, Hebrews 3.13, lust, Ephesians 4.22, futile and empty words in Ephesians 5.6 and Colossians 2.8, and even unrighteousness in 2 Thessalonians 2.10. Your own sin, unrighteousness, blinds you and deceives you. Ephesians 4.14 is instructive about the nature of this as it relates to James' usage as well. It says, we will no longer be little children. Okay, Think about how these phrases fit in with James. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves. James uses both of these images already. And blown around by every wind of teaching by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. So when, when you're right with God, when you're mature with God, when you have the spirit operating properly in you, you're no longer, Paul says this in Ephesians 4, verse 14, you're no longer like little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. The techniques of deceit. Lying. Trickery. All of those phrases we've already come across in James chapter 1. That's what he's talking about. Similarly, 1 John 1, 8 says that if we say we have no sin, then we what? We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So deception and truth are opposites. All right? I don't know how accurate it is or not, but, you know, used car salesmen often get a bad rap. 
for being deceptive, right? About their vehicles. So, whether or not it's true, <coughs> deception is a problem. Deception is something that you don't want to be deceived about your sin, about the consequences of that, okay? I don't know how deeply you think about scripture. I don't know how deeply you think about heaven and hell, etc. <coughs> but do you want to end up dead, standing before Jesus, and have been deceived your whole life? Okay, I don't, which is one of the reasons I have so many books. It's one of the reasons I, I read and study so much, because I want the truth. Okay, if I found out tomorrow that Christianity was not the truth, I would ditch it. Now, it might take me a little while to ditch it, because I've been in it so long, but I want the truth. Now, fortunately for you guys, and fortunately, I think, for me as well right now, okay, I've studied quite a bit. I don't think it's deceptive at all. I think it is the truth. It's because of Jesus. Okay? Jesus is the truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way to the Father. And if he hadn't lived and existed and died and been buried and rose from the dead, I, I don't know. I wouldn't be able to say the exact same thing. But we got real, like, evidence, okay? Faith is more than just evidence. But he really did do this. Pilate really did have him killed, okay? This happened. <clears throat> you don't want to be deceived. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 is probably one of the scariest passages in Scripture. You can read it this week. Um, and there is some serious deception that's got to be going on in Matthew 7, 21. Because I don't know how else these people think that they're going to be in heaven, and they're not. You don't want to be in that state. I don't want to be in that state. Yeah. So, <clears throat> Adam and Eve, if you think about it, they relied upon their own wisdom instead of God's. And where did it lead them? It led them to death. Okay, they didn't follow Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Okay? So you've got to stop blaming other people, your circumstances, and even Satan for your temptations and sins. That's what James is saying. Above all, don't blame who? God. God. Above all, don't blame God. Because it is not coming from him. Take full blame on yourselves where it belongs. Realize that your enemy, your fallenness, your lusts, your weaknesses, your rationalizations, your sins, they're within you and they have to be dealt with from within. Do not be deceived. When a believer wins the battle on the inside, he can say with Paul, for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in flesh with fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially towards you. You're deceived when you think you can sin and get away with it, Galatians 6, 7 says. You're deceived prior to being saved. If you aren't in here, if you're, if you're in here, I mean, today, and you're not saved, then you're actually deceived. You're deceived. You gotta get the truth. You're deceived when you let others teach you things that are contrary to God's word. Judah, Absalom, Amnon, David, Samson, many others gave in to their sexual temptations. They're deceived. Joseph didn't. Deceit is ultimately about lies. So deceit is contrary to the nature of God and his ways. Therefore, should his children be involved in deceit? No, they should not. Why? Because we're born of the same seed as he is. So we should have no part of deception. So don't be deceived about God's goodness and about the source of temptation. God, it says he's the father of lights. Okay? The father of lights. This phrase is a reminder of God's creative acts recorded in the first book of the Bible in Genesis. It's a reminder of the greatness and the goodness of God. God makes the light, not the darkness, right? He makes the light, and 
and gets rid of sin and death. God is so good and so holy that he cannot be tainted or touched or tempted by evil. He is completely separate, completely holy. The father of lights. Father meaning begets, creates, lights, dispels darkness. Okay? John 1 says what? Jesus came into the world. He is the word, right? He came as the light of the world to dispel the darkness, but the darkness preferred darkness. It didn't want the light. Now, the focus here is that James says that not only is God the father of lights, but he also says that every generous act and perfect gift is from above. So I want to talk about these good gifts in God. God gives good gifts. In fact, he gives the perfect gifts. They are the right gifts at the right time for the right person to make you mature and complete or perfect in Christ. The perfect gift is from the perfect giver, God. The reason your temptations, which occur because of your unchecked desires, blow up in your face is not because of God. Nope. Those things are evil, and God only gives and produces good things. You see, once you understand that God is only good and the temptations of sin is only leads to evilness, then you realize that this can't come from this. They're opposites. The one who created the heavens and the earth has something much greater in mind for you. Remember back in verses 5 and 6 of James chapter 1 when um, he told us to ask God for wisdom? When we're stuck and we don't know what to do. Well, now he's telling us that not only does wisdom come from God, okay? He said, ask God for this wisdom, but so does every good and maturing gift, which is why temptation can't be from God. It's not good and it's not maturing. The whole point of a temptation really is it's a shortcut. So it's not maturing you. It's a shortcut. You have to go through the process to get mature. It's a shortcut. Think about the three temptations that we have recorded for us in both Matthew 4 and in Luke 4 for um, Jesus in the wilderness. Everyone was a shortcut. Everyone offered Jesus something that basically he was going to get anyway. They were just offering it early and without the pain, without the process of going through it. It's a shortcut. Cheating on a test. It's a shortcut. All right? Offering you the end result without going through the maturing process. Let's just be blunt. The maturing process is the hard part of life. If we didn't have to go through that, if we were just born and then suddenly, boom, we were like an adult grown and all perfect and everything was great, right? That would take away everything, right? You don't have growing pains and everything else that goes with that, right? But no, that's not how the process works. That's not how anything works, okay? How do you become skilled at what you're good at? Yes, you go through the process. So James' emphasis here is that all good things are from God. So don't be deceived about your temptations, but rather turn to God, okay, who gives these good gifts. Both the act of giving and the gifts are good, and they come from the Lord. So how much of a giver is God? Well, look at Romans 8.32. It's not on the screen, but you can write it down. It says, he did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Grant means give, right? So we're giving gifts, right? The good giver, okay? So if he gave his son, 
He'll give us everything we need. The scriptures elsewhere say that he's given us everything you need to live a life of godliness. Everything. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 22 says, Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. Why his faithful love? So his mercies never end. What? They're, they're new each what? Each morning. Each day. But that's a gift. It's like a gift-wrapped box that drops out of the sky every day for you. It's like that gift that God gave the Israelites in the wilderness when the manna was there on the ground for them when they got up out of their tent. It's the gift that the rock kept spilling forth water for 40 years in the wilderness so they could drink and not die of thirst. It's the gift that keeps giving. Why? Because God is the giver. He continues to give. In contrast to the selfishness of following our own desires, God is generous and gracious in his gift giving. James says that whereas you and I are often flip-flopping in our desires, which causes us to receive nothing from God. Remember back in James 1, if you're double-minded, what do you get from God? Nothing. In contrast to that, God is the opposite. He is steady. He is stable. He's not changing. There's no variation, the text said in our, our text here. He is steady. He's not like a flickering shadow from a candle in a room where the shadows on the wall weave back and forth. You know what I'm talking about? Turn off the lights, light a candle, and every, every little air puff blows in a new direction, right? So what do the shadows do? They, they move all over, right? James is saying, okay, they didn't have electricity back then. They would have used candles, right? So the people would have understood this. James is saying, God doesn't like those shadows that are moving all over the walls. No, that's not what God is. God is stable. He's steady. He stays the same. He's unchanging. The same yesterday, today, and forevermore, right? That's the God we're talking about. His first gift, specifically to you, we see here in verse 18. Look at the good gift number one that we see. He says, by his own choice, he gave us new birth by the message of truth so that we would be the first fruits of his creation. So what is this, the first gift that he gives us? Gift number one was salvation. I don't know if you saw it on the screen or not, but gift number one was salvation. The new birth, okay? This new birth process, he says, by his own choice. So whose decision? God's decision. Think about giving, okay? I know, we're coming up on Thanksgiving and Christmas, okay? Do you want gifts from somebody that was forced to give you gifts? No. No. You want gifts from somebody that, out of the love of their heart, the overflow of their heart, they wanted to, right? And gift, gift giving can be hard sometimes, right? You're like, I don't know what to get this person, you know? And so the thing is, though, that you want gifts out of love, not compulsion. Melissa likes it when I bring her flowers home. But... She might still like them, I don't know, but not if she had to make me bring them home all the time, right? I haven't brought them home in a while either, so I probably should. So she's like, yeah, it's about time, honey. Anyway, it's when you desire it, when it's coming from your heart, when you, out of love, are wanting to do this. That's what we're, we're looking at. God chose, okay? So a new birth. What's a new birth? You have this little seedling here, okay? It starts out. As just a little seed. 
and it takes root and it begins to sprout. And eventually over time, it can become a great strong tree that produces good fruit. That's what you and I are supposed to do. We're supposed to produce this good fruit, but it takes time for us to mature to get to that place. But what does God do the whole time? He is giving us these good gifts necessary to mature us and to produce that good fruit in us. Yeah, we start out as a baby. So what happens when you become a new believer, a follower of Christ, you get saved, you're born again, you receive Christ, you become a child of God. These are all the same things, a new creature in Christ. These are synonyms, okay? The old is past, you become new. So the first good gift that he gives us by his own choice, verse 18, is salvation. This comes down from above. Hence, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus is told he has to be born again, or some translate it as born from above. Okay, same idea. Where are all these good gifts coming from? Above. Where is the good wisdom? Wisdom from above. Wisdom from heaven. Okay? Not human or earthly. Not wisdom from below. That's the contrast here. Above and below. Okay, what it comes down from above is the good stuff. All right? You don't want the stuff from below. You want the stuff from above. You want the stuff from God. In Revelation, the new heavens and the earth, they come where? From above. They come down from above. Why? Because they're coming from God. Why? Because he's making everything new, and we'll see how that plays in here in just a minute. So contrast the good gifts from above, the new life, with your sinful desires from verse 15, which gives birth to what? What are your sinful desires birth? Sin, which leads to death. Yeah. So your sinful desires birth death, and what does God birth? Life. Okay? That's the contrast here. You go with your ways, you bring death. You go with God's ways, you get... Now, notice that you're given salvation, if you'll accept it, as part of this first fruits. And first fruits is the next thing that he's talking about here. So, being born again is just the beginning of new life in Christ. Now the fun really begins to start. We become changed from the inside out, and we're to begin producing fruit that matches our new nature in Christ. No longer anger and resentment, but instead love and forgiveness. No longer immortality, but virtuous living. You can look at Galatians 5. You can look at Ephesians uh, 4. You can look at uh, Philippians. You can look at Colossians, probably uh, 3. And all these, Paul gets into the put-offs and the put-ons. What's he talking about? He's talking about the old life, the new life. You've been born again. This is how you live now. This is the fruits. Now, if you remember from our study on the feast in the Bible, that the first fruits is just that. It's the beginning. They're supposed to be what? What? It's the best, but what comes after that? More. More fruit comes. This is just the first fruits, okay? First implies there's more. Second, third, fourth, right? So when you look at this idea, the first fruits were the first, and they were the best of the crops that were harvested. And they were usually an indicator of what the rest of the crop would be like. A farmer would usually be inclined to take the early harvest and store it away in case the rest was lost to drought or locusts or other calamities. But in the Bible, God says the first fruits go to him. He gets the first fruits. Notice that James says that our salvation, speaking of humanity, is the first fruit. Okay? So the text says that we are the first fruits, so that we would be the first fruits of his creation. The end of verse 18. So what is he saying here? This is just the beginning. So the salvation that we have is just the beginning. And I think there's two aspects to this. 
first off, I think contextually, James is writing to mostly Jewish believers. Okay? So these Jewish believers are the first fruits of what God is going to do with the church and the kingdom. Okay? After the, after the believers, after the Jewish believers um, began to increase, uh, there was kind of a tapering off of that, and then Gentile believers began to increase. So, like, if the Jewish believers are the first fruits, then the Gentile believers are the latter fruits, okay? But there's also, I think, another aspect when you look at this um, eschatologically and through the rest of Scripture is that in, cre- in his creation, okay, or of his creatures, that could just be referring to humanity, but the Scripture also has this idea that with Romans 8 and Revelation that all of God's creation needs to be redeemed and renewed. And so in that sense, we as humans, okay, who are born again by God, are the first fruits of the whole creation scheme, okay, that are being renewed and going to be made new for the new heavens and new earth. You all tracking with me on this? Okay, so we're the first part of that. So that's what James is saying. He's saying God's not the one giving these temptations and evil and death and sin. No, 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 you don't understand God is the good giver. God gives good gifts. Okay? And let me tell you about these good gifts he gives you. How about salvation? Hello? He starts with you, people, okay? And specifically, in James's context, you Jewish believers who have now accepted Jesus as Messiah. And from there, he's going to build on that, because you're just the first fruits. He's going to build on that until eventually the whole creation is renewed. And it's all made complete and mature. And no more sin exists. That's what we're talking about. William Barner in his commentary says, James is telling us that just as the good and complete God gives us only good and complete gifts, so he also desires that his new creations be good and complete persons. Now, this is all foreshadowing where James is going to go in the rest of the letter of how you're supposed to act and live this out in a very practical way. How you treat the poor, how you treat all different types of people, what you do with yourself, etc. So that was the first gift, salvation. Now, good gift number two, okay, is also there in the text. If we look at our verses again, verse 18, he says, By his own choice, he gave us a new birth by the message of truth, so that we would be the first fruits of his creation. So he gave us a new birth, but how? By the message of truth. So good gift number two is the scriptures. Good gift number two is the scriptures. Now we're going to unpack this even more specifically next week because the whole next section deals with the word in the text, okay? But note that James not only indicates that God graciously and of his own choice saves us, but James also tells us how he does this through his word, okay? Which, for alliteration's sake, we're using scripture, okay? So they're both essence, salvation, and scripture. Now, you might wonder why James doesn't talk about Jesus. Why doesn't he say, you know, Jesus saved you? Isn't that kind of what Paul would say? You know, you're saved by Jesus. But you have to understand what James's point is and what James is going after here. You see, <clears throat> people are, are being deceived about the trials in their life, okay? People are being persecuted. People are wondering how to respond to this. And James is saying, you need some wisdom from above. What about this above? Well, that's God's abode, okay? 
you need wisdom from God. Oh, wait, wait, wait. But if God's so good, like, why is he letting me go through this temptation? And why is he tempting me? Oh, whoa, wait, stop right there. God's not tempting you. Your temptation problems are your inner problems. Because God is all good, and God's a good, giving God. So, don't be deceived about that. Since he's a good, giving God, let me explain how. First off, he gives you salvation. Is that good or bad? Good. good. Well, where does it come from? Okay, so is he giving good gifts, but he's really bad? No, he's giving good gifts because he's really good. Oh, okay. And how does he give you that salvation? Oh, let me tell you, he's only good gift to you. Scriptures. He gives you the word. That's why he's a good, giving God also. And that's connected to your salvation. But it's also, as we'll see next week, very much connected to how you live your life. Without that good gift of scripture, you would be left to just kind of muddle around. Now, we could put the third one up here. James doesn't really talk about it um, in this section, but um, I would actually add, you can just add it in, it's not on my outline, it's not up here, but the other gift that God gives you is the Spirit. Okay? So there are Christians that don't have much of the Scripture or any of the Scripture, and God has not left them with no hope. He's put the Spirit inside of all his believers, so wherever you are, you're walking with him. All right? But with the scriptures that we're talking about here, <clears throat> God's word has always been highly valued by God's people. In Romans, Paul quotes from Isaiah in speaking of how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of salvation to people. Now, he's not talking about how beautiful their literal feet are. It's not, oh, you have such nice toes. No, it's not what he's talking about. Okay? He's talking about how awesome it is, how beautiful that you love God so much that you would go to wherever God would call you to go and you would bring the gospel that does what? Saves people because it's a good gift. So what's he saying? He's saying that you're willing to go and you're willing to bring the gospel of God, okay, this good gift to other people. That's what he's saying. That's why your feet are beautiful. <clears throat> James is highlighting the scriptures here also because he's going to spend a good bit of time focusing on the importance of them, which is what we will focus on <clears throat> next week. You can look at your, your text and maybe just jot down these couple things I'm going to say and meditate on it this week in preparation for next week, that if you look at chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, you'll see the word referenced again. Then you'll see the law of liberty in 125 and in 212, and then the royal law in 2.8. All of these are references to the word, which we'll unpack next week. So, <clears throat> God's good gifts, okay, the scriptures and salvation, are what enable you to live a life of godliness are what God is using to prepare you for his new kingdom. So is, is God evil or have anything to do with evil? Is God evil or have anything to do with evil? No, God is what? Good. And God gives only good gifts. Yes. So all these good gifts come down from the Father of lights. Whereas in verse 15, your desires conceive and give birth to death, 
here God conceives and gives birth to new children in the family of God. William Barner again in his commentary on James says, you need to choose between the polar opposites of a God who is either good and gracious or evil and indifferent to his creatures. Now, a lot of atheists and others have accused God of the latter, that God is evil and he's indifferent to his creatures. When we look at things like suffering in the world or cancer or people die and these things, we say, if God is good, he, he, he could have stopped that. He's all powerful. He could have stopped that. Why didn't he? See, James is challenging that kind of thinking. And he's saying, where are you going with that? See, you've got to go back and you've got to dig deeper. You've got to understand who God is. Some of these things are perplexing. Sometimes we don't have answers for all these things. But is it because God is evil? No. It's because God is good. How do we know God is good? Based on what he has given us. Based on everything that we see in scripture. Based on the thousands of years of history and experience and testimony of people who have known God. So James's challenge, continuing from last week, this, this passage is a, a, con, a connecting and a transition passage from last week into, into next week's. But one of the reasons that I wanted to spend the whole week just on these three verses is as a Christian, this concept of God being good is, is, a, is a make it or break it deal. When, when people suffer and go through hard times, this issue is, is the fulcrum. This is the splitting issue for them. If they decide this latter half, he's evil, he's indifferent, especially that last part, he's indifferent, he doesn't care, people go away from God. If they decide and cling to the fact that he is good and gracious, they draw in to God. Where does a child go when he's hurting? Into the arms of his mother or father. Why? Because he thinks they are what? The first or the second? The first, good and gracious. A child who does not think his parents are good and gracious, but rather thinks they're evil and indifferent, does he go into their arms? No. And so, maybe this has been you. Maybe you know people in this situation now. If you know people that have been hurt and they're running from God, it's probably because they're struggling to grasp or believe that he is good and gracious. And they're oscillating or gravitating towards he's either evil or he's indifferent or both. So my challenge would be, you yourself don't be deceived. Number two, pray for them. Be bold. Ask God to reveal himself and show his goodness, his kindness, and his power to them. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to see clearly that we would not be deceived. That we would realize how good and gracious you are. Forgive us for any times that we've thought otherwise. I also pray that you would help us to be bold in sharing this truth that you are good and gracious with others. Show us today, Lord, in this week the gifts that you have poured out into our lives, that we would be thankful for them, that we would see how good and gracious you are. And I pray today that anyone who might be here or listening to this, Lord, that isn't sure where they stand with you, 
they haven't been born again. They haven't received your word and your salvation, these precious gifts that you offer. That today they would cry out to you. They might cry out to you and say something like this. Say, dear God, I, I realize I've been deceived. I haven't been following after you. I haven't understood maybe. I, I've just been chasing my own ways, my own wisdom, my own will. And I've been wrapped up in, in my own temptations led me to not good places. Forgive me, God. Would you wipe that away? I do believe now that Jesus died on the cross. He paid for my sins. He, he paid for and offers me this salvation and I can become part of your family. God, forgive me and bring me into your family. I want to follow after you. I want to follow the good God that you are. I want to participate in your family. If you pray something like that, if you mean that from your heart, you're sincere with God, he sees your heart, he knows what you're saying. He'll give you that good gift. He'll bring you into his family. Become part of the larger family of God that is being made new by God day by day. And one day we'll be part of the new heavens and new earth in his kingdom. And my fellow Christian, cry out to God. Ask him to show you his goodness. Ask him to open your eyes. Ask him to help you to not be deceived. Pray for that wisdom from above without being double-minded. Believing that he will give it to you. In Jesus' name, amen.